There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Amen. Thank you, Neil. Oh, good evening, church. We're all real sleepy from the snow, I guess. Good evening, Sparrow City Church. Good evening. There we go. Hey, I get it. When I saw that snow, I was like, oh, today sounds like a real good day to just snuggle up on the couch, watch some football. Um, But here we are. And you braved the winter weather, you braved the storm, the storm, uh, Snowmageddon 2022. Um, it was a rough one. So today we're going to be talking about how we are a kingdom, or we are a people of peace. How Jesus is going to bring his kingdom of peace as the Prince of Peace. And as I was preparing for tonight. Uh, I will be 100% honest, this was, my week was the antithesis of peace. Um, life was hectic, it was chaotic, my children made things difficult to prepare, um, there were weeping and gnashing of teeth come bedtime, which bedtime is my only time to then prepare it was a combination of all of the above. And so last night, I finally finished at midnight for tonight. Um, so this week, thank you, Bethany. This week was not peaceful. But the Lord loves to just work in irony, oftentimes. And it's no secret that 
as a world, as a society, we live in a very polarizing moment in history. There is so much tension between different ideological encampments. You've got Republican versus Democrat, and then you have the libertarians that shake their heads at both of them. You have conservative versus progressive. You have biblical truth versus live your truth. You have pro-life versus pro-choice. Biblical definition of marriage versus cultural definition of marriage. Free speech versus misinformation. Protect the Second Amendment versus abolish the Second Amendment. Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays. The sequel trilogy of Star Wars was horrible. The sequel trilogy of Star Wars was the best. The list could just go on and on and on. All of this tension is anything but peaceful. And yet somehow, they always turn into arguments around the dinner table, which usually happen to happen around Thanksgiving with family. At least, that's how my Thanksgivings typically go. How are we to be a people of peace in a time that bubbles with anything but peace? When we look at Isaiah chapter 11, we can really break it up into four parts. We have the proclamation of the one who is to come in verse 1 and 2. The character of the one to come in verses 3 through 5. We have the state of what his reign will look like in 6 through 9. And then we see who he has come for in verses 10 through 12. Like I said, this week was just a struggle with trying to prepare, trying to figure out how do I want to approach this message. And at the end of the day, it just made sense. We're going to go through it verse by verse. Um, so we're going to start in, chat, in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, to understand the context of this particular verse or how we begin chapter 11, we really need to go back one chapter, a couple verses, to chapter 10 in verse 33 through 34. Behold the Lord God, I'm sorry, behold the Lord, the God of hosts, who will lop off the boughs of a terrible, with a terrible crash. Those who are tall in stature will be cut down and those who are lofty will be brought low. And he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. See, this stump is representative of the house of David. And it's interesting to note that the author could have said, from the stump of the house of David. But rather, the author says, it's from the stump of Jesse. It's been several centuries at this point, from Isaiah to the coming of Christ, since the authority of the house of David really had any authority at all. It had been at the, its lowest at that point of history. And we see that the author is then showing the humble nature 
in which Christ is entering into the world by showing or saying that he's coming from the stump of Jesse, not from the authority in the house of David. Then in verse 2, shows us that this branch of Jesse will have the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We see that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And we see how this is shown in Luke chapter 3, Verse 22, when Jesus is getting baptized by John, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. You see, Jesus didn't have just the spirit of a man or a deceiving spirit. He had the very Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, upon him. He has the spirit of wisdom because Christ is wise in all things. Hebrews 4, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is wise in all things that we go through. And not only that, but he also has a spirit of understanding. Since Jesus is wise in all things, he also understands all things. Meaning that he understands us, his creation, his people, perfectly. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He understands our struggles. He understands our temptations. He understands the hardships that we go through. And because of that, he has the spirit of counsel. Since Jesus is wise in all things, and he understands us perfectly, He is fully and perfectly qualified to be a wonderful counselor. We see in Isaiah 9, chapter 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and prince of peace. Not only does he have all that, but he also has might. He is our mighty God, the one alone who has the power to save and redeem his people. He has a spirit of knowledge. Jesus' knowledge far surpasses our own knowledge, in every shape and form, in every way, every matter. He has all of the facts. And lastly, of the fear of the Lord. See, what the author is doing 
is they're showing that there are seven aspects in which Jesus is foretold to have the Spirit of the Lord upon him. And in the Hebrew tradition, and Jewish tradition, the number of seven signifies fullness and perfection. While these are not the only attributes in which Jesus has, and we know that, and we see that in Scripture, but the author, like I said, is showing that the Jesus that uh, Jesus had all the attributes of the Holy Spirit in full, because the Holy Spirit was upon Jesus in perfect harmony. There is no tension. There is no friction between God the Son and God Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit descended upon him. In Isaiah uh, 11, chapter 3, we continue on. With we begin to then, as I said, we begin to see the character of who this branch of Jesse is going to be. His delight is in doing the will of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. John chapter 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is all about doing the will of the one who sent him. To come down, humble himself in the form of humanity, fully God and fully human. To bring his creation back to him. To be with his people. To understand his people. To be a beacon of light for his people. Not only that, but he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. You see, Jesus does not pass judgment purely based on outward appearance or by what someone says. His judgment is fully based in righteousness. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Typically, when, we co- when I come on uh, hot-button words like this, equity in today's day is a hot-button word. In, in the world standard, equity would mean um, equal outcome in the most layman's term possible. It's equ- equity in today's world is equal outcome. But the biblical understanding of equity in this context is the word, the Hebrew word for misor, which means level ground, plain, rectitude, fairness, justice. And in this verse specifically, it's the word rectitude, which I had to look up because honestly, I did not know what that word meant. And it's the quality or state of being straight, Moral integrity, righteousness, the quality or state of being correct in judgment or procedure. And the New American Standard puts it as this way, and decides with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. See, Jesus' judgment is not based just on equal outcome so that everyone gets the same. It's based on the moral 
integrity of the person before him. It's not based on skin color, ethnicity, stature in life. It's based on your moral being. How have you been? And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall kill the wicked. Because Jesus' judgment is based on righteousness and in righteousness, he judges fairly not only those who are poor, but also those that are wicked. He is fully just in how he decides. And then the next segment in 6 through 10 is when we begin to glimpse the kingdom of peace which is to come, or the final state in which this peace will be realized. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and a little child will lead them. You see, even enemies' nature, or enemies in nature, predators and prey, will be at complete peace with each other. Predators lying down with their prey. This will be a complete transformation of the natural world as we currently know it. We will see the nature to kill within predators just cease. A nature that was brought on by the fall of man. Romans 8, 19-22 For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It is not just humanity that will be freed from the bondages of sin and destruction, but all of God's creation will experience release from this bondage of sin and destruction in its destructive nature. Jesus' coming kingdom will truly bring peace to all of creation. He will restore all of creation back to where it was truly intended to be, truly designed to be, in the garden. Animal living amongst human. No desire to kill. This nature in animals will change, like I said, even in the way that they relate to humanity. We see in verse 6 again that the little, a little child will lead them. And in verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The animal kingdom will be at such peace with humanity that even a child is safe in the presence of the most deadly of predators. And the child will lead them. 
and verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Creation will no longer be ripping itself apart. I forgot my water. Ever since the fall, creation has just been ripping apart at itself. Animal against animal, human against animal, animal against human. Death and destruction. But the Prince of Peace will come and he will end it all. They will live in perfect harmony together. Human with human, animal with animal, human with beast. And then we see who this kingdom of peace ultimately is for. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal or a banner for the peoples, of him shall the natures inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time, to recover the remnant which remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations, and he will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. See in verse 10 when it says, In the day, in that day the root of Jesse we also see that Jesus echoes the same theme in John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, if I am to be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This kingdom of peace that he's drawing people to, he wants it for all of humanity. He wants it for everyone. But we, but we also know that the reality is not everyone is going to bow and declare him as Lord. But the beautiful thing is, is that those that do, that call him his Lord, or their Lord and Savior, we then become adopted into this beautiful family. And currently, even within the family of God, there is not peace fully. There is friction and tension. Brother fighting against brother. Sister against sister. Mother versus father. Father and child, like in my case this week. But the beautiful thing is, is that in him, we have this new identity. In Galatians 3, verse 28 through 29. For you, all son, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you were baptized into Christ, that clothe yourselves with Christ. That there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So Christ calls all of humanity to him, and for those that call him Lord, as I said, are given a new identity. These walls that we put up, for whatever reason we do it, that divide us and create this tension and tribalism, he tears them down within the family of God. They're not designed to be there. All Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, free, all have equal standing before the throne. Equal value. Equal worth. And we are made descendants and heirs of the promise of Abraham. In verse 11, in that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands in the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel, gathered as first of Judah from the four corners of the earth. There were several times in which Israel and Judah were invaded by other nations. Part of it largely was due to God's judgment upon the sins of his people. And they were dispersed and cast away. But Isaiah shows that he is calling them all back from the different corners of the earth. And there's this concept of a remnant which purely means a remainder. Those that have stayed faithful to their king, to their God. You see, the Lord remains faithful to those that have remained faithful to him. Sometimes I like to be a little bit nerdy, and so I was diving into some research of um, what would a remnant look like for, for us today. And there was a study done just last year uh, by Dr. George Barna from the Cultural Research Center. Um, he did this, this big study where he surveyed um, people that professed to be Christians, professed to be born-again Christians, professed to be uh, born-again evangelicals, and then what he deemed at, or what he called integrated disciples. Integrated disciples were the ones that fully believed in everything that the Bible had to say, its authority. They had what's called a biblical worldview. And the shocking thing was that 6% of self-proclaiming Christians, 6% of U.S. adults, held truly a biblical worldview. And when you factor in children and teens, uh, it came to 9%. Interesting, interestingly enough, only 30%, 36% of pastors held a biblical worldview. And 
there were 10 foundational beliefs of a biblical worldview that they utilize. And I think it's important for us to understand because if we're not aligning ourselves with who Jesus is, what Jesus says, then we have an issue. And so these 10 foundational beliefs are one, belief in the one true God who is personal, infinite, self-revealing, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, self-existent, sovereign, and eternal God in righteousness, holiness, and redemptive. God is a trinity of three eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you believe that, check, you got one. Belief that God reveals himself in nature and scripture, and ultimately in his Son, Jesus Christ. Belief in the authority of scripture, that it is inerrant and infallible word of God. Two. Belief that God is the source of all creation. Belief that human beings, male and female, are created in the image and likeness of God, but are born sinners in rebellion against God due to the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is perfect in both his deity and also in his humanity. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He suffered and was crucified for our sins, buried and rose again in bodily resurrection. He ascended into the heavens and will come again in glory. And salvation is God's work accomplished in us by his grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, whose death on the cross cross accomplished the redemption of sinners. He died as our penal substitute and was raised victorious over death in his bodily resurrection. Belief that the family of God's gracious and loving creation created for our protection, pleasure, and partnership. Sex is God's good gift and is to be enjoyed only within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It is intended for intimacy, pleasure, and the gift of children. Belief that human society, government, culture, and nations were created by God for our good. Yet, all societies are marred by sin and limited in authority. Christians should seek to make the will of God supreme, not only in our own lives, but also within our government and our society. Belief that the social order should be permeated by Christian witness, living out the ethics of scripture, we are to be salt and light to a wicked and dark world. We should oppose racism, greed, selfishness, all forms of sexual immorality and pornography. We should help the orphaned, the needy, abused, the aged, and the helpless. We contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Belief that the day of judgment, God will judge all persons and his justice and holiness will be fully satisfied. 
believers in Jesus Christ, the redeemed, will enter into everlasting life in a place called heaven. Unbelievers, the unrighteous, will go into everlasting punishment in a place called hell. Only 6% of professing Christians believe all, if not most, of those tenets. And 69% of adults within our country claim to be Christians. And yet only 6% hold this biblical worldview. This is the definition of a remnant within our corner of the world. And he is calling his remnant worldwide to enter into his kingdom and will be with him for eternity. So why? Why is this all important? And I know that was a lot of information. Sometimes I like to be a little bit nerdy. But there's a reason why this is important. Firstly, we need to understand what this word peace actually means. In today's modern understanding of the word, it's commonly understood as just the absence of conflict and of war and of tolerance. If you tolerate someone, you're at peace with them. If there's no conflict, if there's no war, then we are in peaceful times. And scripturally, Yes, it can mean the absence of conflict, but there's actually so much more that goes into it. See, in the Old Testament, the word peace means shalom, or is shalom, which means completeness and wholeness, or complete and whole. And in the New Testament, it is erne, which means peace. So in order for us to truly understand and be a people of peace, it means that we have to be complete and whole if we're to help bring peace to our nation and our world. It means that there needs to be some wholeness and completion. The idea of peace in Scripture isn't just that conflict will no longer be a thing, But that true shalom is when the world, our lives, and the state of all things is whole and complete. Tim Mackey and the Bible Project did a a great short five-minute video on this. Um, And I pulled a couple quotes that that I have pulled up just because he said it better than I could have. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored wholeness to, broken, to the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our erne. He was the whole, complete human that I am made to be, but have failed to be. 
And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. To be a people of peace means that we first need to have our own broken lives first restored by the Prince of Peace through his life that was given up as a gift of grace. A gift of grace that brings reconciliation between a loving, holy God and his creation that wandered away from him. And then Tim Mackey also says, Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. Being a people of peace means that we, as a church, as the church, local and universal, need to wholeheartedly pursue unity within the body. To pursue reconciliation with a brother or sister if there has been an offense. To be humble with one another, patient with one another, and love one another as you would love yourself. To see the church become whole and for his kingdom to expand to more than just the remnant. We are called to go out into the nations and to make disciples. To expand this remnant. To bring people, to help bring people into relationship with him so that they can experience shalom, the intended wholeness that they were always intended to have from the beginning of creation. To walk in the garden with their creator with the rest of humanity in this perfect peace with creation, animals, and humanity. And the thing is, this shalom that we're called to, sometimes we can get a glimpse of it here on earth. But it's only just a glimpse. While we experience this glimpse of what the kingdom of peace will look like and feel like once the Prince of Peace returns, even just this glimpse that we get to experience is going to be far better than the peace that the world has to offer. It's better than just the absence of conflict. It's better than just tolerance. So let us strive to bring shalom to those that are around us so that his kingdom can grow just a little bit more here on earth so that we can help prepare the way, bring more people into his kingdom, into his peace, into his wholeness, into his completion. Because only 6% 
a worldview that he is God, the one and only God, that he, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he came and he died on behalf of us in our place so that we can have life. Only 6%. Church, that's not enough. That's not enough people who are experiencing shalom. Not enough people that are entering in to the kingdom of peace. That are communing with the Prince of Peace. Let us strive to be a glimpse of peace to those that are around us. Let them get a taste. Let them see what it's like to be full of hope and joy and love and peace. Because it's better than what out there has to offer. In every way, shape, and form. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. That you are our wonderful counselor, mighty God, King of Heaven, the Prince of Peace. Thank you that you want to use us to expand this kingdom of peace to more than just 6% of people who believe in a God. To more than just 6% of people who call you their actual Lord. To more than 6% of people that acknowledges the authority and power of your word in its fullness. What I want to see this world be at peace.
creation that have not yet looked to you as their king. Maybe show them what true peace looks like. That we are complete and whole in you. That you, Jesus, are a source of peace. That we have nothing to fear. throughout the world and we will walk with you Let's be a people of peace.